I want to encourage you this morning with the extraordinary example of the first church in Thessalonica. We heard about it in our Bible reading just now. And it's a church that thrived against all the odds in difficult circumstances. So as such, it's it's a church worth learning from, a church worth imitating. But I want to start with something from today's world and then link back. We live in a world of personal preferences, a world where we love to know one another by the choices we make. Think for a moment of those quick-fire celebrity interviews that we see on TV or read in the newspapers. You know, the the famous person is asked a series of either-or questions, uh, like your favourite TV show, Strictly Come Dancing or X Factor. Are you Apple or PC or, or tennis? Are you Federer or Nadal? And then there are the questions that try and get at what are your sort of personal values? What's important to you? So a question like, you know, as a dinner guest, would you prefer Bob Geldof, the crusader for aid in Africa, or Madonna, the material girl? Would you rather give money to Bassey Dog's home, or would you give money to stop the traffic, tackling uh, human trafficking around the world? Just to, as an aside, I, I got my daughter to throw together those pictures uh, of celebrities and uh, she, she selected I, I love the juxtaposition of Mr. Bean and the Queen. It's kind of... <laughs> so something about her sense of humour. But in all this, the, the rules of the game of these either-or questions is you have to make a choice. It can't be both and. And though most of the time the two choices are equally valid, once you've made your personal mind up, you can stick with that. And, you're, and our culture says you're under no obligation to accommodate anyone else's choice. Well, what about church life? Do we also have our personal preferences? So when it comes to sung worship, are we for hymns or songs on uh, guitars and drums? Are we for Charles Wesley or Chris Tomlin? On preaching, do you prefer detailed verse-by-verse explanations of the Bible passage? Or is your preference inspirational encouragement on Christian topics? Of course, our personal choices start to get a lot more contentious when they express our values, especially our theological convictions. So, uh, Think about the way we pray. Some of us want to prioritise worshipping God, listening to him and soaking in his presence. While others, others of us want to focus diligently on praying through particular needs and requests. And then we delight to see those needs and prayers answered. Some of us want our commitment to world mission to be front and centre. It's all about Operation Christmas Child. Others of us now say, local mission, that's the thing, that's where we need to prioritise. Let's get involved in the night shelter. Wow, what an overload of issues I've just reeled off. But I don't want to overwhelm you this morning. I reel off those options to get to this question. Is it okay for our Christian lives, lives in church, to be a series of either-or 
preferences. As individuals and a church, does it matter if we have different or even opposing opinions about things? Or does it depend what the thing is? For example, is it fine to differ on styles of worship, but not on how we interpret the Bible? Speaking of which, let's get back to the Bible, and specifically to this young church in the city of Thessalonica, to which the great Christian leader, Paul, wrote a letter of encouragement. The key question to ask of our passage is this. Did Paul call for either either or choices or call for a commitment to both this and that? Did he encourage the Thessalonians to have personal preferences or hold quite different things in tension? Well, a bit of background before we look at some of the key sentences in our passage. The church's story was that it was started by Paul, Silas and Timothy as a little missionary team and they'd come to Thessalonica from Philippi. They were probably in the city about three months. Uh, Then there was a, a riot that was started by the local Jews who opposed Paul's teaching and that forced the missionaries to move on to another city, Berea. You can read about the, act, uh, the, the details of the story in Acts chapter 17. Paul was briefly in Athens, and then he moved on to the big city of Corinth. And it was from Corinth that he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out how the church was getting on. Well, Timothy returned with a really encouraging report. And it was that report that prompted Paul to write this letter to the church. Did did you catch some of the tone of delight and joy in Paul's words? And no wonder. You see, humanly speaking, a church like this should have collapsed. It was just a few months old. They were suffering intense persecution. But it wasn't just surviving. It was thriving. Well, why was this? Our passage shows that the young church held strong because it was a church of both and, not either or. To cope with the very difficult circumstances, they figured out, with the Holy Spirit's guidance and also thinking back to the teaching that Paul had given them, they figured out what the main things were. And they figured out that the main things were things in pairs. They figured out that both parts of each pair needed to be embraced. It was not one or the other. Okay, I realise that's going to take a little bit of explaining. Let's look at verse 3 together. We continue to remember before our God and Father. Your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that reads as three pairs, but can be summarised as one. The Thessalonians were intensely devoted to God on the one hand. They were expressing faith, love and hope in him. And on the other hand, they were equally committed to tireless, practical Christian action in the service of others. Work produced by faith. So in a bit more detail, what were they placing their faith in? Surely in the gospel that Paul had shared with them. Verse 5 in our passage, our gospel came to you not simply in words but also in power. And the content of that gospel 
was what Paul taught the the Thessalonians. And it's summarized in Acts 17 and verse 3. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to rise, to suffer and rise from the dead. And the Thessalonians believed this. And the response to their faith was work. Well, what kind of works did they do to show the genuineness of their new belief? Verse 8 in our passage. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has been known everywhere. So, So one part of their work was evangelistic outreach. They shared the good news of salvation offered through faith in Jesus. They talked about Jesus and taught the gospel in words. But they also lived out their faith in practical ways. Chapter 4 and verse 9 reads, Now about brotherly love, we don't need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. In fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And in context, that suggests they were offering pastoral, practical, and maybe even financial support to other persecuted Christians in the area. Well, a church today that's following this example of faith and works is one led by your friends and mine, Dima and Arina Trofimova in Balakchi, Kyrgyzstan. Alan Cutting, one of your church family here at Burlington, took, took a group of us, including myself, from Tunbridge Baptist to visit Dima and Irina earlier this year. And here's how Irina describes her ministry. Let's watch this very brief video clip. My name is Irina, uh, and uh, 18 years ago we moved from the capital of the Kyrgyz Republic to this little town to plant a church. So when we arrived, uh, we were looking for different ways how we can reach people, how we can bring good news to the people's homes. And God showed us a very interesting tool. He was saying that just social ministry. He said, go and start care for poorer people, especially street children. And it was new for us because at that time, you know, being a young church, we've been thinking about just preaching the gospel, you know, just distributing booklets, just sharing the word of God, but not specifically doing some kind of actions. And God said, no, show my love. People need to see it. So and in 2000, we started this ministry, and we started from the shelter. And later, five, six years later, God said, Right now, when you have good experience of working with the local government, with the national government, with the different agencies, now you need to take all your experience and pass it to my people. He said, just go to my church, train my people how to reach their communities using this approach. I want people see my love through your hearts, through your work, just reaching my poor people. Really encouraging. Our our team saw firsthand how this ordinary group of believers is demonstrating the gospel in practical ways. And then through that, seeing huge opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Arena tells us that every month, 
Individuals and families are coming to faith in Jesus through the ministry of the Raising Families program that she leads. So, work produced by faith, but also love, uh, sorry, love, sorry, labor prompted by love, back in verse 3 again. And the word labor emphasizes that it isn't just work, but hard work. Helping and loving others requires effort, diligence, and personal sacrifice. It means deciding not to give up when things get difficult or when attempts to share the gospel are met with opposition or anger. And this leads on to the third pair of terms in verse 3, endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian work isn't just about the high points when someone comes to faith or a healing is experienced or when there's a miraculous answer to prayer. It's also about a long obedience in the same direction. That's a very memorable phrase phrase that Eugene Peterson, uh, the writer of the Message Bible translations, puts it. A long obedience in the same direction. I'm reminded of uh, very recent news from one group of Operation Christmas Child church partners overseas. I'm not allowed to tell you the location, but I can tell you some of the details of the stories. So here we go. Somewhere in the world... There's a region of about a million people, of whom 99% are Muslim. Those who aren't are a few foreigners from neighbouring areas. No churches have been allowed to start there in the last 80 years. Five years ago, a few Christian foreigners began distributing Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes. Each year, team members were put in jail just after distributing the boxes But each year they came back and asked for more boxes. Then two years ago, the team courageously decided to start offering the Greatest Journey Discipleship Programme. But they decided it was wise just to offer it to the children of foreign families. So last year, 12 children did the course. But remarkably, these foreign children started to share their new faith with their friends at school. And the result of that was that they invited them to join the Greatest Journey course this year. So this time, 25 Muslim and other children have been doing the course as part of a children's club. Now, the parents of these children have begun to notice change in the behaviour of their sons and daughter. And they've been so struck by that that it's helped significantly change misconceptions about the Christian, communi- uh, Christian groups in that community. And then the most remarkable thing happened just in August of this year. The local authorities announced that the local church could start a new church for the first time in 80 years. God is using this handful of simple but committed children to build a resilient church, a church that has endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that church is starting to transform its community. But what about us? Our endurance in ministry is shown when we faithfully visit someone that's shut in in our fellowship, an older person who can't get out to church. It's about diligently developing good habits of holiness, perhaps to deal with areas of personal weakness. 
Maybe that's a lack of self-discipline. It might be pride or laziness or selfishness. What we watch on the TV or online. And these things take time and effort. They require endurance or steadfastness, to use the old-fashioned term that some uh, translations of the Bible have that term in verse 3. And this endurance comes from our hope in Christ. Our certain hope is that he has saved us, he is saving us, and he will save us, so we know that our efforts aren't useless. He will empower us by his Holy Spirit to change ourselves and to see others change. So Paul commends the church in Thessalonica for balancing their love of God with acts of love towards others. But he also commends the way they balance another pair of opposites. Verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because the gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. Again, it looks like more than one pair. Words and power, Holy Spirit and deep conviction. But if you'll bear with me, indulge me, a little bit of grammar going on here, a device called a chiasm. That's just a fancy name for a, a crossover of words. You can see it if we, if we put it up like... <laughs> I'm, I'm too happy with the, uh, the clicker here. Can we bring the four words back? That's it. And one more. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's really not, not behaving. Okay, so the point of a chiasm, it, it, it brings together words in pairs. So words mainly go with conviction, Holy Spirit in power. So you've got the, the words in the middle of the verse, Holy Spirit in power, and then the brackets on the outside, words and, and conviction. So just to, uh, to go into that a little bit more. Paul explains that the gospel was effective among the Thessalonians Firstly, because it was words. It was a message that could be spoken and heard and be rationally understood in the minds of the hearers. But if it had stopped there, it would just have been a bunch of ideas that made sense. No, Paul says, the Holy Spirit also worked in power to bring deep conviction. It's not just a gut feel, but a committed decision in your mind about the truth of something. So when it comes to understanding the gospel... The Holy Spirit doesn't shut down our minds, but rather supercharges our minds, helps us to think really clearly for the first time. Jesus promised about the Holy Spirit this. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment from John 16. So the Spirit supernaturally overcomes our rational and irrational objections, and that helps us grasp and gain conviction about the truth of God's word. But it wasn't just words and thoughtful conviction. There was also power and the Holy Spirit in action. That's the other side of the balance. Both the power of the Holy Spirit is in the hearts and minds of the Thessalonians, moving them to repent and turn to God. But we shouldn't discount that Paul was also referring to signs and wonders and miracles, the amazing things that accompanied the proclamation of the gospel during the times of the early church and since. So the life of the Thessalonian church combined both truth and power. For example, in verse 6, Paul comments, in spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. 
Surely only the supernatural touch of the Holy Spirit could give the Thessalonians joy in the context of such severe suffering and horrible persecution. So the Thessalonians loved biblical truth and they loved the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is where it starts to get a little bit more challenging. You see, it's easy for us to say, oh, we're like the Thessalonians. We love the Word and we love the Spirit. But let's, let's be honest with ourselves. Most of us tend to lean one way or the other and usually support our preference with some pretty strong theological convictions. So we'll pay lip service to the other side, but in our heart, we still want what we want. In practice, balancing a passion for the word and for the spirit looks extremely difficult, even impossible. It's like walking along a tightrope. How did the Thessalonians do it, and what was the result? Well, in wrestling with this question, I found it helpful to think in more detail about tightrope walking, literally, not just metaphorically. You see, on the face of it, stringing a wire across a canyon or between two skyscrapers, then starting to walk across, uh, along that wire at the mercy of gust of winds looks both extremely foolish and very difficult. But when you look into the physics of what's actually happening on a tightrope, it's not quite so crazy as it looks. The secret is in the long, drooping pole that the Skywalker is carrying. I brought along this uh, extendable window cleaning pole as a, to just to give you as a, as a visual aid to help you imagine it. So imagine this is four times as long as this, and it's weighted on either side, perhaps with uh, um, six kilos of weight on, on either side. Now, there's a couple of effects that are going on. The first is that this pole reduces rotational inertia. Now, I'm no physicist, and I I read the explanation about three times and couldn't understand it, so we'll put that one on one side. But the other effect is it lowers your centre of gravity. So, just in in a similar way, you know, we saw this on the rugby yesterday, you know, the the big prop forwards, they crouch down like this, they're lowering their centre of weight, and they're much more difficult for the Australians pounding towards the All Blacks to knock them back. Same thing with a tightrope walker. What happens is the pole, especially with its weights, lowers your centre of gravity actually below the wire. So, in fact, the most straightforward and the dominant thing the walker can do is actually shuffle his feet along the wire. It's actually more difficult to step off the wire than it is to stay on. And I think this picture helps me grasp what is happening with the church in Thessalonica because they were holding two extremes in uh, tension and as a result experiencing incredible stability. And the the church there wasn't a place of all things uh, to all men. It it wasn't like a, a compromise with a sort of soggy centre, you know, I don't know, let's have a little bit of the Holy Spirit, but not too much in case those that are really passionate about the Bible get a bit huffy or, um, you know, uh, um, let's not have too much Christian service in case the contemplative types think, well, there's not enough enough prayer going on, there's not enough uh, waiting on, on, on God. 
No, the Thessalonians were full on in both commitments. They had radical expectations of the Holy Spirit's supernatural intervention and activity in their lives as a church, and yet they were also unrelenting in their determination to read, understand, and preach God's word. And they were committed to work to change theirs and others' lives over the long haul. No wonder Paul was excited about this church and its impact. Verse 7, And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has been known, become known everywhere. The church isn't just surviving despite severe hardship, but thriving so much. It's having an impact throughout Greece, and its reputation is known throughout the Christian community in the entire Roman world. Why such a great impact? Because the Thessalonian church was a church of both and. They were passionate on both ends of the spectrum. And that meant that the, the, the stability of this and this meant if, if they pushed beyond here, well, the weight of this side will pull them back. Good for them, we might say. But do we see this balance of extremes working in our churches today? At Tunbridge Baptist, we're pursuing the difficult balance between being carefully committed to studying and teaching the Bible and also being open to God speaking to us through prophetic words and pictures. Now, maybe you've got everything sorted here at Burlington, but just in case you haven't, here's a a crucial thing that I want to leave with you from the example of the Thessalonians. Being a both-and person or church doesn't mean giving up on our personal convictions, but it does mean paying a lot more than lip service to other views. It means listening carefully to and being willing to learn from others. It means being open to letting them reshape my views, usually just in in part, but occasionally in a big way. So do we want to be a church that does both and rather than either or? Do we want to hold personal preferences lightly, being willing to learn from different perspectives while still graciously bringing our own? Do we want to walk the tightrope of passionate extremes that will potentially transform our witness, both in our community, in our town, and even the world? I do. Just a moment of quiet reflection as we close. I'll play. I'll pray for us.